This is Immuno Africa, a podcast dedicated to spotlighting African immunology research. Vaccines are, are designed to be delivered over a specific window. When we count the number of children who receive vaccines, we say, oh, 80% receive vaccines. But in that 80%, maybe half of them received it any time before the window. So I want to see, does that really matter? If it does matter, how can we ensure that the 80% overall coverage is equivalent to 80% of the Happy New Year, everyone. It's a pleasure to have you all back in 2024. Thank you so much for helping us create magic in 2023. For sure, 2024 will be more remarkable, more spectacular, more magical. And we continue to count on your support to make that a reality. This year opens with a conversation about one of the most formidable weapons in the field of immunology, vaccines. And our guest is Dr. Orenebume Wagari. Dr. Wariri is a clinical research fellow in vaccines and immunity at the MROC unit, the Gambia, London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. His research focuses on vaccine epidemiology, particularly examining the performance of country-level immunization systems and investigating the factors that influence the delivery and uptake of routine childhood vaccinations in West Africa. He received his medical degree, MBBS, from the University of Benin, Nigeria, and afterwards specialized as a pediatrician before obtaining his MSc in Global Health as a Chevening Scholar at the University of Aberdeen, United Kingdom. For his PhD at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine, Dr. Wariri is investigating the burden, special pattern, and drivers of untimely routine childhood vaccination in the Gambia. Dr. Wariri has held a Welcome Trust Global Health Clinical Research Training Fellowship at Imperial College London and was the principal investigator of the recently concluded EDCTP-funded Timely Study, which investigated the spatial pattern of untimely routine childhood vaccination in the Gambia. He currently sits on the five-member World Health Organization National Verification Committee for Mizus and Gubela in the Gambia and is also a member of the Management Committee of the Vaccine Center at London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. In July 2023, Dr. Wariri received a five-year Fogarty Emerging Global Leader Award, K43, from the U.S. National Institute of Health to map zero-dose prevalence, delayed measles vaccination, and the risk of measles outbreaks in the Gambia. Thank you, Ward. So I'm really glad to be here to speak on this podcast. So I, of course, I'm Nigerian. I was born in Delta State, I think. Yeah, I'm right. Then had some primary, secondary school mix between Delta and Edo State then. And of course, I had my MBBS, Bachelor's of Medicine and Surgery from the University of Benin. I think that's almost like 15 years ago. Then I went on and specialized as a pediatrician. So became a consultant pediatrician, training with the West African College of Physicians. During my time of training as a pediatrician, I was awarded the Chevening Scholarship to fully funded so I went to the University of Aberdeen in Scotland and had a master's in global health and management. That was in 2016. And of course, after I came back from my master's, I knew at that time, yes, I was a pediatrician, but I was at that time, even before then, as far back as medical school, I knew I wasn't going to be a doctor for very long. But of course, I still had to specialize. 
So, but at that time, after my master's, I veered completely into research. And since 2018, I've been working with the MRC unit, which is part of London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. So, yeah, I'm currently my work is uh, so I work on vaccine research, vaccine epidemiology in the Gambia. And currently, I'm also completing my PhD in the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. And yeah, this year also, I've been a visiting academic at Princeton University in the US as part of an award I got to visit them at Princeton. Thank you very much for that um, introduction. So uh, I think the first question I have, so when I went to your profile that you, of course, you just highlighted that you, you've always had this interest in research, but then you had to specialize first and before you delved into research. Because I've also interacted with some medical doctors who straight out of medical school, they delved into research completely. So I want to ask from your experience, what advantage do you think you have by um, with specializing first before going fully into research? Because you, of course, had that option of just proceeding to your master's and PhD afterwards. Again, um, I, what I'm going to be saying here is based on my own experience. So just yeah. to note that my experience is not the holy grail of um, what everyone should do, but this is my own experience. And just to also note that there's not there's no right or wrong way to go about it. But now talking about my personal experience, right? Like I said, I knew as far back as 500 level in medical school that I wasn't going to be a doctor into my 40s, right? So, but I went on to still specialize, spent another six years after medical school to train again and be a pediatrician. And what it adds to me now, I think, is the fact that when I see things or when I sit in certain rooms across the world, whether it's in Johannesburg, whether it's in London, whether it's in New York or wherever I have been, I have sat, the fact that I am not just a doctor, I'm a pediatrician, and my research is on childhood vaccines, and when we talk of, let's say, example, measles, how it impacts on children, I know it to the detail. I have seen it, I have experienced it, I have managed it at the front end, right? So my research now is more on the more population level. So that fact that when I speak or when I see a problem, I can personalize it to that individual mother or that individual child. I think for me, that's what it brings. Also, there are certain places now where I enter and because of the fact that, oh, he's a doctor, that already raises an eyebrow because oh, they feel, oh, you are a doctor into research, then you say you are a pediatrician. That also opens, has opened certain doors for me that I think wouldn't have been opened. But that being said, there's nothing against anybody that wants to live. In fact, even if you're not a doctor, I'm sure you can do what I'm doing very well. There are brilliant people who never studied medicine doing what I do, do it more than I do. There are people who never specialized out of med school, went into research, did a master's, PhD. They are doing brilliantly well. So, but again, I am talking about my own experience and what I think it gives me the ability to understand things better, the ability to speak on certain things as an expert, and I'm really happy I, I, I took that path. I will take it again if I have the chance of, of taking it again. Yes. Okay, so what, what got you interested in um, this area of research? You highlighted vaccine epidemiology um, a while ago, and then you've also talked about um, um, measles in children. So what sparked your interest in this field? Yeah, I, I would just, I, I can't think 
point, a particular moment in my life that was say, yeah, that's it. But like everything in life, life is a journey. But I would say that my interest in research started back in medical school. So we had this professor who was a provost of, of College of Medicine at the time I was a student. He was giving his inaugural lecture at the University of Benin and he was talking about the research he has done in Germany, here, there. So I was really fascinated, like, wow. It seems as if I found a home. This is where I really wanted to be. Because then I was almost a year finishing medical school, but somehow I was still feeling not comfortable in my skin that, okay, all I would do is be a doctor. That's me personally. So I connected more with him. So I think that was part of my interest. And when it came to the point of choosing where to specialize, at that point in our life, they were talking of millennium development goals and all that. There was always maternal and child health as the major global issues. So it was easy for me to, you know, let me go and do pediatrics with the child health. Then when I got into pediatrics, of course, I had one of my consultants who was into research on TB. He was, he would always carry me wherever he come and help us analyze some data. So again, that sparked my interest. Then of course, I did a master's in global health. Then I came to work in the Gambia. So when I first came, I was working on an NIH-funded study between Harvard University, University of British Columbia, and the London School at that time. And we were looking at what how the new, new profile of newborn changes when you are giving various kinds of vaccine. So we were the pediatrician on the study and we would take blood from children and all that. But even at that point, I was doing research now or being involved, but I wasn't comfortable because I wanted more epi, more population health and not more molecular kind of research. So I, I would think that it's these little, little experiences. And of course, I spoke to my line manager then that, okay, I love what I do now, but if I have an opportunity, I want to do something more population health, more policy driven. And of course, she was like, you know what? Any opportunity that come up in that area, I will push them in your direction. And she did that. And lo and behold, some three, four, five years after, here am I doing research in vaccination, vaccine epidemiology, on measles, of course. This all impact on children. This is all on vaccine, this is all infectious disease. And like I said, the journey is building blocks, joining together that has brought me here. And maybe in the future, I might be doing something else or consolidating on what I am doing now. So that's how I would answer that particular question. Thank you. Thank you very much for that robust response. So like um, your experience developed from a, your interest rather developed from a multiple or a confluence of experiences that you had right from medical school to the um, research goals and you took after school and the different places you worked or different individuals you, you've worked with over time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, so um, I think before we proceed, uh, your research, I think let's, um, how would you describe it to a lay person in the simplest possible way, vaccine epidemiology? Yeah, so my research is trying to look and see whether children receive the vaccines that are prescribed by the government at the time they should receive it and if they receive it at all. And most importantly, I also try to know the locations where such children are. So we do some ways of using some geospatial mapping to locate certain parts of the country where children might, a lot of them might be clustered so that you can ensure that those children will receive their vaccine and prevent disease outbreak. So most importantly, the evidence we generate feeds back into the government um, kind of agencies to help them know where there are gaps 
and plan to plug those gaps in terms of children receiving their vaccines. So that's how I would describe it to yeah, I'm a lay person. I hope that was lay enough. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think I think that was brilliant. So people are already making vaccines. We are just making sure that these vaccines are getting across to the persons who need them and right on time, so that they get yeah. maximum benefit from it. Exactly. Yeah, great. So what have you been doing so far? And let, no, let's talk about your work more now. What have you been doing so far in this field? And um, what are some of your findings? And why are those findings important? Yeah, I've done quite a few. So um, about four years ago, I collaborated with some groups across West Africa, about seven countries in West Africa. I, I was the lead on that work where we looked at our progress towards the elimination of measles in the whole of West Africa. So to provide context, the WHO, Gavi, the Vaccine Alliance, and other global agencies set an agenda for 2025, if I remember correctly, 2030 rather, to eliminate measles. So I wanted to look at, okay, how has West African countries progressed? Which countries are doing well? Which ones are not doing well? Uh, so that we can know, okay, where to channel energy towards. So that work basically was published in the Lancet, which is a very, very big journal. So I had people I worked with from the Chatham House in London, people from the WHO, the Africa office in, um, in Brazzaville, the WHO office in Nigeria, the WHO office in West Africa, and other people that lead immunization program across in Ghana, in Sierra Leone, in other West Africa countries. So that work really for me is very, was very pivotal to at a glance look at where does West Africa as a region? Because remember, if measles is less an outbreak of measles in Ghana, West Africa has free movement across border based on the ECOWAS treaty, right? So measles is a disease that you cannot, it's infectious, it's transmissible, can easily move across border. So that work was really helpful in knowing which areas were more susceptible, which areas were doing well, and also to help the countries not doing well to learn from the countries that were doing well. Countries like the Gambia were really doing well. Countries like Ghana were have really made very good progress. Countries like Mali, Nigeria, especially the northern part of Nigeria, had like a lot to do to get to where they needed to get to. So that's one landmark work I would say I've done in the last three to four years. When COVID started, we also looked at, okay, there was a target by the all heads of state of Africa to ensure that by 2021, I remember by December, all the African countries would have vaccinated 60% of their population. At that time, COVID was really ripping havoc in the world. They thought that that level would be enough to at least ensure that it doesn't spread as fast and also to ensure that they can reopen businesses and start lives and all that. So we also worked with a, a group from across Africa and group from London to where we looked at, okay, where were African countries, in West Africa countries in terms of reaching that target. And we also found that most of the countries were really far behind. In fact, if they were to reach that target that, that the African heads of government had set out, they needed to ensure that they increased the rate of vaccination by four times the usual rate, meaning they were vaccinated, let me say, a million people per week. They needed to quadruple that. So that really gained some media attention. The BBC in London interviewed me and had talk, talked about um, the particular research in uh, BBC Voice of Africa. So that's one work that I've also done in the last. So there are a couple more, but maybe let me stop there. If there are specific ones, I'm happy to, to hone down on them. But I'm really proud of
and happy to be able to do work in our part of the world, being having lived here, having grown up here, having studied here, having been a doctor in this environment, being able to generate evidence at that population level to be able to see this is where we are at. It's something that really makes me sleep well at night and I'm happy about it. Yeah, thank you. And well done with um the good work so far. I, I think you you really should be sleeping well at night now with all the um contributions that you've already talked about. So I know that um during the pandemic, you know, there were conversations around um the fact that uh, the vaccination rates, not for COVID now, for other diseases, vaccine-preventable yeah. diseases dropped and mm -hmm. it was affected drastically, I think, particularly in um, low- and middle-income countries. And uh, so I want to ask, in the context of your work, um, whether you and you did any research in that context of how vaccination rates were affected during the pandemic and how would you say uh, we've recovered from that experience now? Yeah, you, you, I don't know how to say, to say it, but since you are a prophet, so I did some work on that in the Gambia, trying to look at, okay, COVID-19, because to give some context, Gambia's immunization rates are really high. You can compare them to the ones you will have in Europe, like in the, US, in the UK, for example, or somewhere in France. They are quite that good, right? So I did some work to try and understand, like looking at the whole country, did the pandemic really change the vaccination rate in the Gambia? In fact, that work will be published in the British Medical Journal. It was accepted some um, after going peer, undergoing peer review some weeks ago. So, but let me track back a little bit. So you are right, COVID-19, based on global um, numbers, right, resulted in the largest decrease in vaccination rate over the last three decades. So many countries that were doing well, vaccination rate really dropped. Just imagine, right? There were lockdowns, there were restrictions of movement, healthcare workers were affected, they couldn't go to deliver vaccines, for example. People were able to scare themselves to go to a vaccination clinic. And of course, all these will work together. Even the supply chain of vaccines. Remember, vaccines are not made in, for example, in Ghana or in Nigeria or in Senegal or in many countries in our part of the world. Majority of them are made in India or in Europe. Imagine the supply chain, the flights needed to bring those vaccines to our countries. If the flights didn't come, it means there were stockers of vaccines in certain parts of the world. So people, first of all, the supply of vaccine was not available. Then the demand itself, based on fear of being infected and all, all that. So vaccination rate really dropped. And there's evidence that some parts of the world have now recovered, especially after 2020. From later part of 2021, most countries have recovered. But tracking forward again to what I started with, looking at the Gambia, the evidence we have based on the very thorough work. So we looked at data for children who were born five years before the pandemic started in the Gambia and two years into the pandemic. So we created like every children born every month for five years, children born every month for two years, which gave us like 84 groups of children, like we call them pet cohort and compare them before the pandemic started to when the pandemic started in, let's, it came to the Gambia in March, we tracked it till December, 2022 and see, to try and see, did it change? What we found funnily in the Gambia is that there was really no, decline, no significantly different decline in vaccination rate in the Gambia. Interestingly, we use two vaccines that are like very sensitive. The, there's one called hepatitis B vaccine that should be given at birth. The WHO says should be given within 24 hours of birth. 
So we looked at how many children received that vaccine within the recommended time during the pandemic compared to before the pandemic. And we didn't find any difference really among the number of proportion of children who received within that 24 hour. So you know that 24 hours is a very sens uh, sensitive time. The COVID-19 would have really shifted that. So, but we didn't find any difference in that. And we also looked at other vaccines too. So in the summary, COVID-19 resulted in decrease in vaccination rate across the world. Many countries have recovered. The evidence there is that countries that had very good coverage before the pandemic, like good rates, not, did not really respond very negatively, which was the case we now found in the Gambia that coverages are normally very high in this part of West Africa. And it seemed they maintained that momentum despite the pandemic. So, like I said, it will be published before Christmas in the British Medical Journal, BMJ Global Health. So, the question I want to ask next is, why are some of these countries, why are countries like the Gambia doing well, and or what are they doing differently from other countries? So, countries that are doing, that have high vaccination coverage, what are they doing differently from countries that have not been able to hit really high percentages for their vaccination rates? Yeah, okay, thank you for that question. So there are many possible or plausible reasons why that might be the case. Like I said, if you know geography quite well, you know that Nigeria, for example, and Mali, for example, they seems to be like the largest country even in West Africa in terms of landmass, right? So compared to the Gambia, where, of course, in terms of landmass, probably you can fit it into one state in Nigeria. So that alone gives you a picture of the logistics it requires to deliver vaccines to people in the country like the Gambia compared to countries like Mali where there will be issues, right? Then also, you know that Mali, for example, Nigeria, as well as the northern part of Nigeria had had conflict, Boko Haram or different kinds of conflict in Mali. There have been various conflicts and all that. We know that there's strong evidence that conflict is a key issue that prevents delivery of health services including routine childhood vaccination. So even, let's, let's track to Nigeria. If, for example, places like Lagos or um, River States or wherever have very high vaccination rate, but places like, let's say, Borno State or you have Sokoto State or wherever where there's conflict, right, has very low because of conflict, that can, if you take the overall aggregate, it's going to still be low. Even if you have five states doing really well, which could be comparable to like the Gambia, for example, or could be comparable to Cape Verde. Cape Verde is also another very good West African country doing very well. So in terms of, con I've talked of conflict, I've talked of landmass, there's also issue of difficult terrains. So Nigeria, there are places where to get there, you might have to take some vehicle drive and have to hop on the donkey or have to be on the boat and cross over. Those difficult terrains, hard to reach communities, in these large countries, we have a lot of those kind of places. And some of those places are really well populated. So if you have a large number of people in those areas not receiving the vaccine because you can't even reach them, then of course you're going to have overall numbers being lower compared to a country like Gambia where you could even drive through like in eight hours from the eastern end of the country to the western end of the country. That being said, Ghana was also one very good example where they've really done well population-wise 
probably they are almost maybe 10, 15 times higher than the population of the Gambia. So other reasons to leadership of how do you lead your immunization program? Who, how do we, what policies have we developed? I know that in Gambia, for example, they deliver vaccines through two approach. One approach is that there's a health facility where we normally know primary health care will go there and get vaccinated. They also have outreach clinics where communities that don't have such fixed hospitals or clinic, they set up like people go from particular locations and go and deliver vaccines in those communities. They do it every month. So the mechanism through which people deliver vaccine can also contribute. And also on the demand side, like they would say, the those that are doing well will continually do well. So if historically we've done well, we've not had issues with vaccination in our environment, we are likely going to continue taking. In Nigeria, for example, there were issues when a drug company was testing some vaccines on parts of Nigeria, and that really led to some issues in distrust and all that in vaccines. So many things put together could explain the differences, but not one thing we can say it is because of X. But I just tried to mention a broad array of issues that could explain some of the patterns that we, we saw different across West Africa. But one thing that is common, Ved, Gambia, Ghana were really shining examples, and you can see in those countries, population-wise, landmass-wise, conflict-wise, that they have something in common, right? They are in the good side of it. The other countries not really doing well. The Nijes of this world, the Nigeria, the Mali, for example, the Guinea, where there was a bullet break and all that. Again, we know that there were issues of conflict, difficult to reach communities, and yeah. So there are a lot of things I could explain this, but let me stop at that point. Thank you. Thank you so much for highlighting those factors. So I think you highlighted about, um, I picked up to four important factors you talked about the size of the country and then whether they have difficulties to reach terrains some terrains that are um, almost inaccessible to the individuals who distribute these vaccines and then you also talked about conflict so whether there are existing conflict war torn zones and all of that and then the leadership or the operational model they use for delivering vaccines or accessing the individuals who need to get um, these vaccines, yeah. So I, I think um, regardless of um, all, all of the factors, I love how there is like the um, human aspect to it. Humans also have a role to devise um, the best model that will be yep. um, tailored to um, your own country so that you can reach as many persons as possible. But I want us to quickly talk about the award you recently received, um, I think a couple of months back the Emerging Global Leader Award by the um, Fogarty International Center of the USNIH, National um, Institutes of Health. So I, I think you should tell us um, a bit more about that recognition and award and um, what it means to you and what do you plan doing um, with it? Thanks. Yeah, so I think as you mentioned, I was just smiling because I... I know the work that I went into uh, receiving that grant funding and the award. So the Emerging Global Leader Award is a, a funding mechanism devised by the U.S. National Institutes of Health, right? So the NIH basically funds research in the U.S. and globally. So this particular award, we are looking for people who do research in low and middle income countries who are like early career researcher 
who have done a lot of work and are ready, they feel that if they give you some three to five years of funding, of money, of mentorship, you'll be able to transition from an early career researcher who has like a mentor, who has like a supervisor to some independence where you are now you're fully on your own, you win grants in millions of dollars and lead your own kind of research. So the American Global Leader is made for that person, man, woman in a part of the world who've already done very brilliant work and it's now the thing that they will give you some concentrated money to do research and training that will then help you move to independence. So it's it's something that I look back at and still wonder how I want it because I know that at the time I applied, I don't completed my PhD and looking at the profile of many people that have won it, some of them have got in their PhD 10 years ago. Some of them were associate professors in some countries in Africa. And yeah, but I knew that the kind of work I was doing was really good enough. I knew that my output had been good in terms of publications. I've really done well in terms of leadership in research. I've really done well in terms of winning previous grants. I've won two previous funding myself before. So I threw in my heart, it was a year kind of process. The application was to be expired in November. From November of the year before, I was already preparing and all that. So it means a lot to me because it, is, it means that in the next five years of my research is already being paid for by the US government based on my research, everything I would do in terms of the research that is already being paid for. Training I would need to do in that period also is already being paid for. In terms of the funding from the U.S. government, it also gives me connection to a U.S. mentor, and that's um, I have a mentor at Princeton University who uh, I now currently work with to uh, do the kind of research I am doing. In fact, this award was a catalyst for me being uh, being awarded for the um, African Visiting Fellowship at Princeton University, which I was over there at Princeton between um, August and November this year. So yeah, so that's what the award means to me in terms of the kind of work I'll be doing for this work, I'll be doing the research I'll be doing for this um, funding is related to what I was already doing. So remember previously, I've looked at measles in West Africa. I've looked at vaccination rates in Gambia. I have done some special mapping to know which locations have children who don't receive their vaccines on time and all that. So for this award, I am going to be looking for children who don't receive vaccines at all. They are called zero dose children. I want to map them over the next five years and know this specific specific locations that those children are and see if those locations changes. Is it the same locations? Why are those locations there? I also want to look at how the delivery model that the Gambia uses might impact on that. For example, the locations where children don't receive vaccines at all. Are these locations where they only deliver vaccine by outreach mechanisms, which might mean that they might need to put more clinics in those locations. So I'm also going to look at how the timing of how you receive the vaccine, like measles specifically, impact on the immune response you develop to measles after you take the measles vaccine. So my hypothesis is that if I receive measles vaccine too early or too delayed, would it make my response or protection to that I'm supposed to get from the measles vaccine better or make it worse? So those are key questions that I think will be important because vaccines are, are designed to be delivered over a specific window. When we count number of children who receive vaccine, we'll say, oh, 80% receive vaccine. But in that 80%, maybe half of them received it any time before the window. 
So I want to see, does that really matter? If it does matter, how can we ensure that the 80% overall coverage is equivalent to 80% of the receiving vaccine within the recommended window? So I, it's, an, it's an interesting period for me just to also add that I also have to work with a very large group in, in the UK uh, as part of the award to learn some very technical skills in geospatial mapping and modeling and some things. So it's interesting for me, and I really think that um, I'm happy and also appreciative of the US NIH for finding my work um, worthy to be awarded such huge amount of grant money to do the work and training I need to do to transition to research independence over the next three to five, to five years. Yeah, con congratulations once again. Thank you. Yeah, so I think it's already a lot that you've talked about that you'll be doing with this um award you've gotten, and uh, I um you also um uh, mentioned the um how it has made your profile more robust and opened several other doors of opportunities to you and giving you um a platform to even um better um amplify what you've been doing and even make more contributions. So I I, I think from what you said, it appears you'll be doing a bit of molecular work because you um, said that you also want to understand how the timing of vaccines, vaccination affects um, the immune response. So will you be doing some kind of immunological work for that or maybe you are um, partnering with some other researchers to execute that part of your work? Research is about partnership, it's about working with people. So that is the question I want to answer in terms of, okay, how does timing of vaccine impact on immune response to vaccination and all that? So I'll be collaborating with some other teams to try and do that bit of work. But of course, as part of that process, I will also have to get some training in doing that part of the work I wish to do. But in the outset, I have a team I need to collaborate with, especially the team at Princeton University, who I will learn the methods and the skills needed to do that bit of work as part of the overall package of work that I need to do. Interesting. Interesting. So I, I think we are we are really looking forward to um all the amazing contributions you still make through this um, platform and the award in the next um, few years. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I'm still building on the question I asked about collaborations. The comment you made about collaborations, collaborating with other scientists to you know, fulfill some part of that uh, award. So I, I want us to talk more about collaborations in the context of the African continent. So what are your yeah. thoughts? on intercontinental collaborations. I know a lot of a lot, a lot has been said about helicopter. I think helicopter research. research, yeah, how people come out, come from you know, um, the global north, they just come here and do what they want to do. But I just want us to focus on even here within Africa. So what are your thoughts on intercontinental collaborations and what do you think we can do to strengthen it more and really maximize the benefits it offers? Yeah, um, I, th I think for me, that's a question or an issue that's really very close to my heart, right? So, um, first of all, science is an endeavor that you cannot just sit in the confines of your room or your hospital or your research institution or your university and do it alone. For science to have credibility, for you to develop really world-leading kind of science, you need collaborations. There's no question you want to answer that you, 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 you would need multiple views if you want to like build a car, you need somebody who has to be very good in drawing, 
who has to draw the pattern of the car. You need somebody who is very good in electrical, somebody who's very good in mechanical, structural, somebody who is, so, you, so that's how science is. So that highlights the fact that collaborations cannot be done away with. Then coming to intracontinental or intra-country collaboration, again, nobody can do or understand your issues better than you who are in the place where you are in so that highlights the fact that the starting point for me for collaboration is us as africans or us as wherever part of the world we are should first of all start doing work in our own environment because we understand the context we know why somebody is is, is not is wearing black or no, not white. We know why somebody is crying when somebody dies and some other people don't cry. We know. So those contextual issues are things that only us can understand. So the first advice I will give about collaboration is us as individuals, first of all, have to be ready to do work that is important, that is good, that is local to our environment. Once we do that, then it builds to number two, which is have something on the table that is worth collaborating about. Collaboration, I don't see it as um, somebody helping me. Oh, there's this professor in X place in South Africa, it will help me. No, I don't see it that way. I see it as I bring something to the table. That person in Mali brings something to the table. The sum total of what we bring to the table is much more than the individual uh, uh, levels of what we bring. So bring something to the table. Be good at what you do so that when you join your methods from Benin or your methods from Ouagadougou or your methods from Nairobi to the methods somebody have in Dakar, they will really make more sense. So that's the second thing I would say. Three, I would say that my own experience so far, of course, being a doctor, trained as a pediatrician, I've spent the last six years in active research now, right? I know that it is easier for us, especially early career or mid-career researchers, to be looking at that shining, holy grail, strong, award-winning professor somewhere. I think that sometimes collaboration for me, I would say that most of my collaborations are the peer-level collaboration. The guys you work with, the friends, the people at your level doing good work, it is easier to start working with them because you guys can grow together. In four, five years' time, you guys will not be the same people that you were three, four, five years before then. So work together with people who have similar ideas with you, who are doing very good work with you, irrespective of where they are. I think that is key. And let us not be fixated on, oh, there's this professor big name that I must reach out to. No, you need those people. But like I said in one of my writings on LinkedIn, I see those big mentors or big professors or who, uh, whatever we categorize them as like the moving walkways under our feet. Like when you go to an airport, a very large one, and you need to run from one terminal to another, there's this walkway that keeps moving that once you are running on, it increases your the amount of space you cover over time. Yes, you need those people, but I would say that collaborate with your peers and also collaborate for a good cause. Don't collaborate because you just want to publish a paper. Don't collaborate because you just want to have the name of that person or what you do, but collaborate for something that you are really interested in. That way, you will be on it for the long haul. There are people I started collaborating when I was doing my master's. 
the person was doing their master's. Then now one of the person is an assistant professor in Canada. One of them has completed his PhD, is a research fellow in the UK. We are still friends today. We still work together. We are all Africans. We still do African-centric work. There are also people who have reached out to me for collaboration who, in terms of care, that they are very senior to me, but because of they've seen consistently what I have done, like I said in the beginning, bring something to the table. They feel that, you know what, this person brings something to the table. I need to work with them. So to wrap it all up, start doing something good for wherever you are, bring something to the table, look for peers who are doing something similar that you are doing, do something or work with a group of people that you are passionate about, irrespective of border. And the good thing is that be in it for the long haul. It is not today that everything will change. In I look back at four years ago and I smile, I'm reaping the rewards of some things as I did four years ago now because I collaborated. Remember, I told you I work with guys across West Africa. I have worked with people across various parts of Africa. And lastly, I will say, when you collaborate, ensure you deliver. Because I've also experienced where you collaborate with people, when it comes to doing the heavy lifting, they are mostly anonymous. It, it leaves a bad taste in the mouth of the people you are collaborating with. But you might be complaining and they don't want to collaborate again. It is because of people want people who are productive. So if you don't hold your end of the bargain, people are going to walk away. So those are some of the key things I would say now. I know that there might be other things to be talked about, but off the top of my head, those are the ones I want to touch on at the moment. I think that's, that's a mind-blowing response, right? So I've even been trying to jot down all the points you you mentioned. So I think they are, they are really beautiful points. So uh, first of all, for African scientists, we have to make sure that our work has this local context. We are doing something that is relevant to the continent. And then a constant question I should be asking myself as an African scientist is, what am I bringing to the table? So why should anyone want to collaborate with me? And then you talked about the need to often explore individuals that are our peers, individuals that are our peers we are on the same level with, and then um, be to be in it for the long haul to make sure that we are collaborating on something that we are really passionate about, something that is dear to to our hearts. And um, yeah, so so thank you, thank you so much for all of these um, amazing points that you've you've shared. And I, I believe listeners and of course um, scientists within the continent who will be listening to the episode will have um, lots of nuggets to draw from the. Um, Point you've shared on collaboration. So something else I want to ask about is, uh, particularly in the context of your work, what would you say about the translation of research outcomes in the continent? Yeah, I, I, I think the primary role or the primary reason why we do research is for it to inform policy. Whether it's somebody trying to discover a molecule that would be good as a vaccine, we want some that molecule to be developed well and put it on a vaccine so that we can change policy about how we manage a disease caused by the organism that that molecule will protect. Remember, at a point in this world, smallpox was a major issue, but because of vaccination, we've been able to eradicate um, smallpox. Polio was a big issue. There are people who, maybe my generation, that also got crippled because of polio. But right now, maybe about two or three countries only have wild type of polio, thanks to vaccines. So every science that we have done has everything we've done in terms of science is because we want to change policy. But that being said, 
let us be aware as scientists that it doesn't mean that immediately you publish your work that because of just one of your work uh, policy will change the same day or the same year no it, it will not in fact 99 percent of the time it will not what i'm trying to say is that it is the cumulative amount of the evidence out there that ends up changing every policy, right? So let's give an example. If government or a regional government, a regional organization might say, okay, tomorrow, this is what we want to do for X. Let's use COVID-19 as an example. When COVID-19 hit, how did we know that um, lockdowns, how do we know that wearing of masks, how do we know that all those things were key to prevent the spread of the pandemic? It is people's research that have been done 100 years ago, 50 years ago, knowing that for infectious disease that reproduce at that rate, which is the iron knot, right? You need to stop people from contacting each other if you wanted to die out naturally. Those people would have published their work 40 years ago. Some might have won Nobel Prize. Some might have died feeling frustrated. But years after, the cumulative amount of their work comes up to say, ah, this is what the world should do. Let me give another example outside of health research. Cars, I am sure when cars were made by the hairy fonts of this world, they never had seat belts, for example. I am sure most of the parts we have in cars today are not the parts we have. But with time, people will have accidents, somebody will develop, I know somebody developed a seat belt, and for years that wasn't talked about until years after when it was apparent that seat belt can really prevent fatality from the road traffic accident. So just to highlight the fact that our research, most of them will not end up in policy. The ones that might end up in policy might not end up in policy in the next one year or two years, but the truth is that it will end up in policy somehow or the cumulative amount, adding your research in Benin to the research in, in Accra, to the one in Cape Town, to the one in the long way or wherever it is. Tomorrow, somebody might say, let's synthesize this evidence together. What does it tell us? So do research. That is why your research should be original, should be robust, so that we are confident that the policies we are making based on your are your research or my research are the right policies. Knowing that if this research might outlive me, we not might will outlive me, because years from now somebody will come back to them and say this was the baseline vaccination rate or patterns or whatever across West Africa 20, 30 years ago. Where is it now? What was, this was the pattern in Ghana 50 years ago. What was it now? What has happened from that time? Somebody might make a policy. Let's go back to what we were doing 20 years ago based on that research that somebody did that showed that we were doing well at that time. So I don't know, it's, it's a kind of long and convoluted answer but it's not a straight answer to give about research translating into policy but i know that we do research because of policy we might not change policy the same day but it will change policy someday and that's why we should do very good science because lives will depend on the research that you do yeah thanks a lot i i think uh, i i i loved the robust um response you gave even though you're saying that it's quite convoluted but i think the um the myth from what you're saying is that uh it's important to do good work and um, it's not one good work that would inform policy It's the accumulation of evidence over time that would eventually inform policy. So I think we can 
take your final words on the episode. I would say to early career researchers or people in our part of the world that it is our part of the world and we have to do what we have to do to ensure things get better. So don't sit yourself in one corner and feel as if, oh, I'm not important. The people that we look up to today started from somewhere. So let us let us not focus on the shortcomings that we have because I've had my own shortcomings. I'm sure somebody will look at my profile on LinkedIn or on just browse my name on the internet and say, wow, no, we let me shock you. I failed primary four. Primary four, I couldn't speak English, right? I couldn't because of course I had stayed with my grandmother in the village before I moved to Benin. In fact, I remember when we moved to Benin at that time, me and my brother will basically jump school. Primary school will just jump the fence over and go home by 10 a.m. I have had my own shortcomings. Just to let anybody out there doubting themselves, feeling as if they are failures. No, you are a failure if you call yourself that. We all have something to offer. We all have something we can deliver. If you don't get up and feel sorry for yourself, then you are wasting your time. It is not, we were not born with silver spoon, but that has not um, stopped us from getting here. I am just trying to tell you that it is doable. It is in your hands. You can do it. And it depends on how you want it. Do you want to sit back 20 years later and look back and say, hey, I could have? Or do you want to just give Somebody said something this morning that if you are so afraid of failing, you are likely going to fail. But if you are okay with failing, give allowance for failure, you are likely going to not fail. Even if you fail, you will learn from it. So don't be so afraid, morbidly afraid of failure that you sit back and say, oh, I can't do anything. Do something. Tell yourself, okay, I need to do this right. I will do it. My plan is to do it five times. I will fail four times. I will get one time right. At least you will keep acting. The chances are that maybe in the first time or the second time, you are likely going to get it. But the person who is morbidly afraid might not even try. A year later, two years later, they'll be giving their excuse. And it's because uh, nobody is helping me. Oh, it's because my, you understand. So that's what I would say to young people. I'm young, yes. I'm talking to people younger than this. Yeah, that's what I would say. Yeah, yeah. I, I think that's um, a brilliant advice. So to to take the chance on ourselves and uh, uh, to not allow failure to failure or the thought of failure to limit us or uh, make us to um, want to give up on ourselves. Yeah. So I think that's that's really uh, a great way to um, wrap up our chat. And um, thank you also for sharing some of your personal experiences growing up. I, I would say those are those were really that that was really inspiring to think someone who had that kind of experience in primary school is now has now you know, attained to this kind of pedestal today. So anything is possible if we are willing to just um, you know take that chance and you no know, leap into the unknown. So thank you so much for your time and thank you so much for for the chat. Thank you for listening to this episode on Immuno Africa. If you enjoyed it, please feel free to share it with your network. You will learn first about future episodes and get other immunology-related updates by following Immuno Africa underscore other Immunology in Africa podcast on social media. See you on the next episode. Bye.